The readings from Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 to 11, and you can also find it on your, in the Bibles on page 23. Abraham had taken another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Simran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Isbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan, the descendants of Dedan, where the Esrites, the Litterites, and the Lemites, the sons of Midian, were Ephah, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. An old man and four of years. And he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ismael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Memory in the field of Ephron, son of Sohar, the Hittite. The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer-Lehavoy. Thank you, Chloe. We're still friends after that reading, are we? <laughs> I had an, an I would, argument would be too strong a word to, to, to describe the altercation I had with my daughter this afternoon about the correct pronunciation of Ozymandias. We were doing a bit of uh, GCSE literature revision, and I said to her, after we'd crossed swords on it, um, you do realize that neither you nor I are experts in Persian pronunciation, so anything goes, Sheila. Don't tell me how to pronounce it. I won't tell you how to pronounce it. Um, And I'm sure that some of the value of having complicated names that are hard to read is just a little reminder of the cultural distance that we are at then from from that sort of text. So um, I'm grateful to Chloe for doing a reading that nobody would have enjoyed doing in one sense struggling through those names. Let's pray with Genesis 25 open uh, in front of us. We ask, Heavenly Father, for you to speak to us this evening across the centuries. We thank you for this living word and that you are indeed a living God. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, help us to listen and to go from here in fellowship with you, uh, walking with you through the week to come and beyond. We pray, Heavenly Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
I have not been to the westernmost point of Europe, the entrance to Lisbon Harbour, but I gather that there is a monument to the great explorer Christopher Columbus there, and underneath his statue are two Latin words, plus ultra, words which also appear apparently on every Spanish flag. Originally, it was something of an in-joke um, to put that there, because from classical times onwards, the common saying of the day was, ne plus ultra, there is nothing more beyond here. In the negative, those words were used to describe the edge of the known world. In other words, go beyond this point, and you will probably fall off the edge of the world. But then, as the ditty goes, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, He found the Americas and came back, saying triumphantly, plus ultra, there is something more beyond here. A whole new continent waiting to be explored. He'd been there and he'd returned. Now, we come tonight to the last episode in the life of Abraham, and our focus is on the patriarch's death, which is described beautifully in verses 7 and 8 of that little reading we had. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. They are words which point to the Bible's teaching that there is more beyond, more beyond this particular man, Abraham, more beyond this world, plus ultra. One lesson we've had to learn repeatedly as we have gone through the life of Abraham, we've taken our time over it, is that God is the hero of all biblical narrative. We noticed that um, before, if you think about it, uh, we focused on Abraham's morality. There was a a couple of times where he lied. So he lied repeatedly to save his own skin. He, He isn't always the exemplary hero we might want him to be. And we learned it today, not from his morality, but from his mortality. He dies. And God continues working without Abraham. Verse 11, the last verse of our reading tells us that, doesn't it? After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. So who should be the primary focus of our attention as we work slowly through the life of Abraham, Genesis 12 to 25? Well, not in fact Abraham. Inspiring though he often is. God is the hero of all biblical narratives. And it's really important to remember that whenever we look at the accounts of the men and women of faith in the Old and New Testaments. If we forget that God is the hero, we actually rob the Bible, all its stories, of of their power. We turn the stories into little more than children's tales, biblical once upon a times. So Samson just becomes an old-time superman. David killing Goliath. Really, that's just the Israelite equivalent of Jack and the Beanstalk, the brave little boy who kills the big bad giant. When both of those stories, as with Abraham, are there to tell us first and foremost about God. It's always tempting to see these different episodes in the uh, Old Testament as stories about people like us and not to be reminded of the awesome God of the Bible. We prefer not to have him involved too much in human history, in case he makes his presence felt in our lives. We'd rather like to construct our own Legoland reality, putting only the building blocks in place that we choose, building an imaginary world. And instinctively, we will sideline God from that world. 
But of course, in doing that, we're the losers. We're settling for a ne plus ultra view of our world, when actually the eternal God who stands outside time is always at work within time. And he's calling us, even tonight, to enjoy eternity with him. It's a tragedy to ignore him, plus ultra. There is more beyond. So let's look first uh, briefly at verses 1 to 6 in that reading. I managed for the first time in ages to get headings down onto the service sheet. You can see them there. Uh, My first heading then is wider boundaries within this world. And the focus here is on the family lines descended from Abraham by his concubines, um, Keturah, who hasn't been mentioned up till this point, and Hagar, whom we have met before. So this little section is talking about Abraham's descendants. But they aren't the descendants that came about supernaturally through his wife, Sarah, but through his concubines. And as such, they represent the blessing of God, but not supernaturally. They point to wider boundaries within this world. Let me read the verses again. Verse 1. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, and the Leomites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanoch, Abida, and Eldar. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So you see that the distinction that's being made between his various descendants. It's very clear to Abraham. He left everything he owned to Isaac... But he had been careful to ensure that the sons he had by other women didn't oppose the child of promise, Isaac. So before he died, he took care to make provision for them as well. Later in the chapter, we can see how Hagar's son Ishmael got on. But in verses 1 to 4, we just see how Keturah's sons fared. And we're meant to be recalling the promise made many years earlier to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. That's actually what the name change meant for him, father of many nations, including these nations mentioned here, the Asherites, the Tushites, the Leomites, and the sons of Midian. And some of them, you might remember the part they play later on in the Bible story. These aren't nations who would be God's special people. That ethnic grouping would come from Isaac's family. But they are still part of the outworking of God's promise to Abraham. And the book of Genesis therefore sees them as significant. Actually, throughout the book, genealogies matter. These lists, all these unpronounceable names of unheard of individuals, which I suppose we would be tempted to ignore, they are part of the whole onward thrust of the book. They matter to God. So the death of Abraham is set in its context by describing the families that spring from him. And as usually happens in these genealogies, the ones who play little part in the history of salvation make their bows first in the history of salvation. They're the uh, ones that uh, come on stage first to leave the chief actors in possession of the stage. We're interested in Isaac, aren't we? And uh, maybe that'll have to be a future series to focus on him. Well, we'll come to him a bit more probably before this series peters out. 
But the very existence of all these different names reminds us that our God is God over all the earth. And even where peoples and nations aren't part of his believing people, but would one day be Israel, still, he is at work bringing blessing. He's controlling the rise and fall of nations. There is no name in the history of humanity which isn't known to him. And no individual who doesn't owe him thanks for his blessing. And I want to say we could include each of our names tonight as well. He knows you. He knows your neighbor's name. He knows the child, the grandchild, who hasn't even yet been born. We've got to have an awareness, therefore, of wider boundaries within this world, that this is God's world, and he is at work within it, not just in the narrow confines of where he's known and acknowledged. Now, I hope it isn't a matter of hanging too much on these verses, but in one sense, the doctrine they remind me of is what's known as common grace. God's grace, which is shown to all human beings in common, simply by virtue of their being human. The idea that this world and human society is under the blessing of God, so that God blessing Isaac in a special way doesn't preclude him blessing the sons of Keturah and Hagar as well. Throughout the world, there are traces of God's sovereign kindness and love in creation, which you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate. We've already prayed about the coronation, haven't we? I think uh, we ought to acknowledge, in one sense, England is not a Christian nation. But even within this world and within a multicultural England, you should be able to see beyond the boundaries of this world to acknowledge that God blesses us, all of us, with many good things. Social stability, beauty, family life and friendships, human culture. However flawed those things are in a fallen world, they are there because God is sovereign over the whole human race, including each one of us, uh, whatever our situation That couldn't possibly be the main lesson we learn from this passage today. So let me move on to a second point. Wider boundaries beyond this world. To begin with, we see that there is life beyond this world for Abraham. I think that's implied in the verses I started with, verses 7 and 8. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. A word is used there to describe old age which doesn't normally occur to us. Abraham died at a good old age. Good isn't the word today which normally people would use to describe old age. Most of us think that 100 years is quite enough. There was a a curate once who got handed a bit of paper just as the uh, service got underway. said to him, Please pray for Mrs. Hargreaves, who is 111 today. So when it came to the prayers, he launched into a prayer full of praise to God for the wonderful news. 111 years old, what a life. Only to discover at the end that he'd misread the notes, which in fact said, please pray for Mrs. Hargreaves, who is ill today. (laughs) Now Abraham makes it to 175 And there's no hint here that we're meant to take that figure any way other than literally. He was 175, and it was a good old age. 
But for him, even in a life which was blessed by God, there was more beyond this world. You learn that, don't you, in the lovely phrase the Bible often uses to describe death. He was gathered to his people. Just stop and pause on that phrase at the end of um, verse 8, is it? Gathered to his people, it, it cannot mean simply that in burying him in the family tomb, he was reunited physically with his family members in the same grave as them. At this point, according to verse 10, Sarah was the only member of his family buried in the tomb of Machpelah. No, what it means is this. For a believer to die is to be gathered to their people in the sense that we join beyond death a whole gathering of those who have died in relationship with God. So for Abraham, it meant a reunion with Sarah, sure, but with many, many more besides, with Adam and Eve, with Abel, with Seth, with Enoch, with Noah and his wife, with Terah, with everyone who had died in friendship with God. God is committed to gathering his people together. He does it in this world as churches assemble week by week. He does it supremely in what the Bible calls the church of the firstborn, the spirits of righteous people made perfect. Maybe we think sometimes as we turn up at church, our gatherings here are small and insignificant. But there are many, many more gathered on that far shore beyond death. And we belong in that gathering if we are Christians. And one day we will enjoy that gathering perfectly beyond the grave. So I hope you can see why I say there is more beyond. Death is exactly like our world's horizon. I can only see as far as the horizon, but the world isn't flat. I don't drop off beyond the edge of the world. The surface of the earth continues beyond the horizon. And death may mark the extent of what I can see now, but it doesn't mark the limit of where I will one day travel if I'm a believer. I wonder if you've come across those books, 1,000 Places You Must See Before You Die, uh, 1,000 Films You Must See Before You Die. Um, there's lots of the, the series, aren't there? They're probably a good read, but they treat death as the end and this world as all that there is. So we've got to maximize our time and travel and everything else. What a tragedy if we look to our deathbed and there's nothing beyond that to look forward to. Dr. Johnson was a great thinker, and towards the end of his life, when was it, 18th century, 17th century? I'm looking for a historian to give me a clue. He's, his eyes down. A couple of hundred years ago at least. Anyway, he built a fantastic villa for himself in Twickenham, and he was showing his friend David Garrick round. Garrick was a famous actor and director in the 18th century. He was the sort of Steven Spielberg of his day. And Johnson showed him the house and then all the beautifully laid out gardens there were. And then he motioned with his hands. These are the things, he said to his friend, that make a deathbed so terrible. Just living for this world as if that was all there was. How foolish to do that. Now, of course, it affects us way before we reach our deathbeds. You hit the age where you probably begin to imagine that you have fewer le years left than you have lived already. I've passed this 
momentous milestone already in my life. And it dawns on me that I'm probably not going to make quite the mark I imagined I would at one point in my life with all my amazing talents. So in a desperate attempt to convince myself that I am significant, uh, this is typically true of middle-aged men, isn't it? We embark on a romance or throw ourselves into some youthful hobby or the idolatry of a career or whatever it is. It's the same sort of mistake that is often done, isn't it? When people are old... They're tempted to live in the past. When people are wealthy, they're tempted to live in the present. And Abraham had been both old and wealthy. And yet the testimony of scripture is that he lived for the future wholeheartedly. The best was yet to be. It makes a difference to how we face the final quarter. So don't miss that retirement event, please. It's really important for us to prepare well for those later stages of life. So there is life beyond this world for Abraham. And then a second subheading, there is life beyond this world through Isaac. Let me read verses 9 to 11 again. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahe Roy. Striking in the story, given what we've seen already, it's striking how God is mentioned in verse 11 the first time in our passage. Just a reminder that God outlives and outlasts Abraham. Of course he does. How could we forget that in the book of the Bible which takes us back beyond time? In the beginning, God. The God who made the world predates Abraham's life and indeed all human life. So he also outlives Abraham's life. In fact, he's the one who will bring all of human history to a close. It's obviously a general lesson here about mortality for everyone. The lesson is that nobody is indispensable in God's program. Abraham dies and he makes way for Isaac. Good people do die and others take on the work. Maybe we need to remember that if we consider our role in the life of the church is indispensable. Or our role as a church is somehow vital for God's kingdom. That can't be right. No one human being, no one church is vital. You think that the whole scale of God's salvation plan, scanning generation after generation, is meant to make that point, isn't it? So I'm really thankful that we have a commitment as a church. So I think about the APCM coming on Wednesday. I'm glad we have a commitment as a church to be involved in raising up the next generation of God's people. It shows in all sorts of ways. I hope it shows in the way we try to take our trekkers' work seriously, the All Saints kids, as you probably know of it now. It shows in our commitment to train up a new generation of Christian workers, ordinands and curates. We've got to encourage them onwards, even if there isn't always an obvious return for us as a sending church. In fact, there almost always is. And even if, more often, they surpass us in their gifts and abilities which is one of the slightly uncomfortable things about getting older, isn't it? We find ourselves overtaken by the rising generation. But that's a general lesson, therefore, about 
Isaac and the next chapter of the story. But there is a specific lesson about the shift from Abraham to Isaac, which Paul highlights in the New Testament. No need to turn it up. I'm just going to quote to you from Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is Galatians 3, verse 16. Paul says this, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, and here's the surprise, who is Christ. Because through Isaac, there would one day come another child, who would be the result of an even more miraculous birth, Jesus Christ. So the life of Isaac was the first step along the line of human history towards Jesus Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham. And here we are, a couple of weeks after Easter, in a perfect position to realize the plus ultra message of Jesus' life. He died on the cross to undo the spell of death, which our sin brings with it. And having died like Columbus, he journeyed back from beyond to open a glorious new world to everybody who trusts in him. There is more beyond. I just want to close by calling on us all to thank God for that. Thank God if you've begun to experience that new life through Jesus Christ. And if you haven't yet begun that, then please look no further than Jesus Christ, our great hope. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for all the promises of the Bible. You've made so many promises and never broken one of them. Uh, And we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you for sealing those promises in the blood of Jesus Christ and for confirming them through raising him from the dead. And we pray you'd help us to put our faith firmly in him for life beyond this world and that it would make all the difference in our day-to-day life in this world. We thank you afresh for Jesus being alive today. We praise you for him in his name. Amen.